Welcome to Deal Closers with Annette Tali, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Tali. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Tali, and my guest today is Bruce Peterson. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm very excited to have you again. And let me tell you guys a little bit about Bruce. Apartment guy, Bruce Peterson, is an award-winning real estate syndicator, TV personality, public speaker, and business coach in Texas. His syndications have spanned multiple years and have consisted over 1,100 units. Bruce was a stockbroker in the early 90s, and after a long and successful career in retail management, he has, he has been investing in real estate since 2012. So tell us a little bit about you and how did you decide to get into real estate? So I worked, like, like you said, I worked in retail for about 18 years and I loved that until I realized I hated that. I hated everything about it. I was working 100 hour weeks the, the last year that I was there, hit a wall, walked away. Um, I was 43 years old and I had kind of sort of retired. You know, I was done. I was spent, didn't have a family, no pets, no girlfriend, nothing. So I thought, okay. Uh, I drove around the eastern half of the U.S. for about a month and a half trying to clear my brain, trying to think, okay, now what am I going to do now that I'm kind of a grown-up and uh, I gotta, I'm got i going to start all over. Uh, I just relaxed for a year and then that got old. I just played my yard for a year because all my friends were still working. Everybody was busy with their own lives, their own family. So I had nothing to do. Uh, so I would just play in my yard all day. Um, and I realized this is going to get old over the next 50 to 70 years. And this ain't going to work. So I just sat down at the computer one day and did a Google search for a real estate mentor in Central Texas. And uh, I started digging through some and found somebody that was willing to teach me and show me the ropes. Um, Jumped into it thinking that, you know, I'd buy a couple of houses initially, pay those off over 15 to 30 years, and then live on a cash flow. Well, luckily, my mentor, the person that I was having walk me through this, explained to me why that was a really stupid idea. So uh, they talked to me about apartments and why I should be in apartment complexes instead because I had the money, the time, and the skill set, even though I didn't think I had the skill set. I was a retail guy. But they talked to me about how what I had done in retail would convey, and it, was, it, it would help me a lot. So I started my education in 2011, bought my first property in 2012, which was syndicated. I've syndicated every deal I've ever done, and uh, that first deal was a 48 unit in North Austin, and we sold it two and a half years later for a 300% return uh, to our investors. And we've been off and running since. We've done over 1,100 units to date. Uh, won some national awards for what we do. Been um, having a really good time doing it. And it's, it's that whole, you know, the buzzword, right? Financial freedom, financial freedom, financial freedom. Well, that's kind of what it's done. We have scale now that we've hired corporate staff. We have on-site staff. So we manage. Uh, I'm the asset manager of my company still. Uh, but I have people to carry out the day-to-day -day operations. So it's, it's freed us up to have a more balanced life, a more rewarding life. Um, and it's freed me up to go find more deals and more productive stuff with my time. Excellent. That is awesome. The Deal.
So what deal are we going to talk about today? Well, we'll talk about the deal that I did. It, it's another one in North Austin. It's 192 units that we bought in 2017. And I say we because my wife is my equal partner in everything I do. Uh, it's not just me. She's the CFO of what we do. I'm the CEO, so we do it together. Um, but it's 192 units built in 1973 in North Austin. Excellent. So how did you find this deal? Just a regular old listed property. You know, everybody's always asking me, well, how do I find properties? I can't find properties. I need to mail things to people and cold call people. Well, do that if you're trying to buy a six unit property. If you're trying to buy a two to three to 400 unit property, that's probably almost guaranteed not to work. So it was just a listed property. We get some uh, off-market deals from time to time because we've proven ourselves to be a very good buyer. Uh, so the brokers will send things to us unmarketed. And in fact, this one was non-marketed, but I passed and then they took it to market and then I circled back around and bought it after they had marketed the property. Yeah, that's awesome. So it was listed. All right. So um, what was the price that it was listed at and what did you end up buying it for? It's three years ago, so I think if I remember correctly, it was listed at, at 19.5 to 20 million, right in that area. We ended up getting it for 18.7 million. 18%. Okay, so that's a big discount. How did you negotiate this uh, discount? When the broker first brought it to me, he said, Man, it's right around the corner from another property you own. I think this is a good fit for you. I was like, Okay. I said, How much do they want? Um, maybe it was nine. Yeah, I think it was 19.5. He told me 19.5. I said, oh, You know, I could probably make it work at 19. He goes, okay, I, I think that'll work for my, for my seller. Let me talk with him. So I went and visited the property. Uh, we did our initial tour with the broker there, and I started asking questions, and we got some answers that made me go, oh, you know, it's probably good at 19, but I'm not liking it right now. So I, I said, look, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to have to go down to 18. He goes, well, that's probably not going to work. I said, well, that's where I am. He said, Okay. We'll probably take it to market. I said, that's fine. And you know, when it goes to market, we'll look at it again and you know, see if anything's changed. And so once he went to market, he reached back out to me and uh, we got to talk it again. And he actually called me when I was at a, a Tony Robbins event in Seattle and uh, gave me the good news that, hey, we settled on 18.7 million. So it was just me getting more realistic with my numbers and then lowering them from there and shooting back at him saying, look, I'll do it for 18. And then we just kind of back and forth it until we settled on 18.7. 18.7, all right. And what were the points that you saw that you were like, okay, I'm not liking this and I, wanna, I want to um, offer a little bit less? What were the surprises when you walked the property? Okay, so what actually did it was something that probably nobody has ever encountered, thought about, or ever considered. Um, and it can be sensitive. The property we bought is around the corner from two other properties we've owned, owned or owned in the past. And what we do is we work with a, a nonprofit called RST, Refugee Services of Texas. So what they do is they help people resettle that are fleeing uh, dangerous situations in their home country. So what happens is they help them settle here, they put them up in an apartment, pay for their first three months of rent, by all the furnishings, by their first round of groceries that helped them get a job. Well, we wanted to be part of that. That was a big deal for us. So we do it and we try to limit our properties to 10%. No more than 10% because very often 
we gave them that kind of leg up. But then once they get established here, they figure out where they really want to work, where they really want to live. So very often they move. My turnover rate with that subset of people is tremendously higher than my normal. So we try to limit it to 10. Well, when I toured this property, uh, the manager on site said that they're somewhere between 40 and 50% of the exact same people. I was like, ah, love these people. I'd love to be involved. It's just too risky for my business. So that's why I had to reach out and say, look, I, I just can't do this. There's a chance I could have 40% of my property disappear overnight. Can't do it. So that's how we came down. What We got about $800,000 off. So that was the biggest thing that I saw. And so did you, when once you took over, did you reduce that percentage or how did you uh, manage that? Well, we came to find out that, and this was good for us, that the manager didn't know what she was talking about. It was actually about 15%, which was very, very, very doable. And we figured that out during our due diligence period, right? So we've got our 30-day window to, to figure everything out. And going through the rent roll and their files and everything, we realized that, ah, okay, it, it's manageable. 15% is a little higher than we want, but we can get that down. So it all worked out very, very well. Excellent. All right. So how did you finance the deal once you had it under contract and now you have to find the money for it? Uh, just a regular agency debt loan. We got almost 80% LTV with a Fannie Mae loan. Uh, coming off the top of my head, it was a 10-year loan, four years of interest only. And for back in 2017, it was crazy low rates. Well, apparently it's not crazy low rates because they keep falling, yeah. um, but we got a 4.35% interest rate. Wow, that's really good. Yep. All right. So for people that don't know, what's the difference between agency and regular commercial loan? Well, the biggest thing is agency will always come with, or always is right now, coming as non-recourse, meaning that you're not personally on the hook unless you commit bad deeds, if you're fraudulent, dishonest, uh, if you're a criminal. Uh, so non-recourse is a big thing. You usually get better interest rates, more interest only, and a longer amortization table. Now, if it's a smaller deal um, that Fannie or Freddie will not underwrite, then you will go to a credit union, you'll go to a life insurance company, you'll go to a local bank, and they're glad to lend locally, uh, but their rates usually aren't as good. Sometimes those will come as full recourse loans. Um, so anytime I can, I try to get Fannie or Freddie debt. It's got its own issues, right? If you try to sell the deal before the end of your loan term, it can get kind of ugly because you're going to owe them a lot of uh, what's called defeasance or yield maintenance, which is basically fancy words for prepayment penalties. So that's kind of the downside of it. They're assumable loans uh, that you can usually sell to somebody else and they just take over your existing loan. Um, but if you don't have that situation, you just want to sell, pay off the loan, you'll usually get hit with a very, very large prepayment penalty for about the first 95% of the term of the loan. Oh, wow, 95%? Yep. Because, so if you have a 10-year um, loan, it's, it's going, they're going to hit you with defeasance for probably nine and a half years. Oh, now, wow, that's a lot. That defeasance comes down, but uh, that prepayment will come down, but you will have something to continue with for about the first nine and a half out of 10 years. So if you do this type of like prepayment or deal maintenance, you don't really want to do it if you're doing a syndication that you're planning to sell after five years or seven years. You may have a, a high 
unless you can drive the value high enough to compensate for that um, for that prepayment penalty. You can also sell it to somebody say, look, I'll sell it to you one of two ways. You can either take over my loan. It will be just making up numbers here. It'll be $10 million. If you don't take over my loan, I'm going to get hit with a $500,000 prepayment penalty. So instead of 10 million, I'll need 10.5 million from you. So you just leave it on the buyer as to how they want to proceed. Right. And you know, if you bought it in the last couple of years, you're going to have a really low rate anyways. Right. So you could assume it. All right. Awesome. So what was your plan for this property? Well, we bought, fully, we bought a fully stabilized asset that we saw there's going to be some upside, but not a whole lot. Um, and usually that's what we're buying are fully stabilized assets that we can come in, run a little more efficiently than the previous owners um, and derive some value out of that. Um, but again, we didn't, you know, it wasn't boarded up. It wasn't 80 or 70% occupied. It didn't have tons of deferred maintenance. So we were just buying a cash flowing asset that we projected to make eight to 10% a year for the first three years. Um, and I think tops out at year five at like 13 is what I had underwritten. Um, so that's why we bought it. It turned in to be a much better deal than we ever, ever imagined uh, because we've gotten it so much more profitable than the past guys did. So it, it's worked out extremely well for us. So what you're looking for, how much of a value add are you looking for when you look for properties? Do you have like a percentage like we want to invest this much? If, it's, if it needs too much money, uh, we don't look at it. Do you have like a guideline on what you want? Well, for this type of asset, no. I'm looking at cash on cash and I'm looking at IRR. That's really all I'm looking at. I'm not looking at value add. Now, the higher the value add, the higher the IRR will go, obviously. But, you know, I'm, on this deal, I'm just looking to see what are we going to generate in monthly or annual um, cash on cash returns. And then I have, I know what my investor base is looking for. And if I can come up with a deal that will pay them at least that, I'm not worried about the upside, right? I buy for cash flow. Now, if I go in and buy a truly beat to hell property that's got lots of issues that I'm buying as a true value add property. And even the first year we might lose money. Okay. Yeah. Then I'm going to look at it in that respect. But when I'm buying fully stabilized assets, I'm not trying to figure out what will appreciation be? What will forced appreciation be? What will my uh, increased equity be? We're buying it for cash flow, And if we get those things on the back end, we're extremely happy. Okay. So, for the you finance eighty percent of the loan, so for the twenty percent of the loan, did you do it uh, with, just with your wife, or did you have investors? No, we're syndicators, so, so we syndicated the whole thing. Oh, you syndicated the deal. Okay, and did you offer the eight to ten percent to the investors, or was that the total return? Now you say offer. Do you mean a preferred return? Yes. No, we've never done a preferred return, and uh, if the market gets to a point where the investors insist upon it, okay, fine, we'll change. But for now, we have never offered a preferred return and I hope to never offer a preferred return because if I do, I have to charge an acquisition fee, a refinance fee, a disposition fee because I got to be compensated for this some way. And if I give you an 8% pref, well, then that means the first 8%, I'm not seeing any of that cash flow as the sponsor. Now, I'll have my own money invested and I'll make some money on my own investment, but a huge chunk of my income disappears when I have a preferred return. So to make up for that, I have to charge anywhere from 1% to 4% for an acquisition fee. So let's say it's a 2%, right? I buy $20 million assets. 
if I buy a $20 million asset and have a 2% acquisition fee, before I do anything for you as an investor, I've already hit you with a $400,000 sunk cost, day one of operations. Go straight into my pocket. Again, I've gotta be compensated somehow for all this risk and stress and liability, but I don't like that thought. I wanna make money while you're making money as an investor, not before you made money, right? So that's why we've done it the way we've done it. Um, you know, we're usually able to source deals between six and 7% after the first year uh, and have an average of nine to 10% cash on cash returns over a five year projection period. Um, and my investors are fine with that. I'm open about it. I let them know there will be no preferred. This is why I give no preferred. Are you okay with that? Absolutely we are. And there is, you know, different ways to do it. So, you know, everyone has their own way to do it. Um, I normally hear the preferred return. So this is, uh, I think the first time that I hear that, you know, in a syndication, you don't do the uh, preferred return, but I like the idea that you are being transparent with your investors and telling them, you know, we're going to do a win-win. I'll make money when you make money. So we make money together rather than doing um, front end um, charges, right? Taking all that money in the front end. Right. And if I take a $400,000 uh, acquisition fee, personally now I've got a big tax liability that I've got to deal with also. So it, it works better for us that way as well. Oh, interesting. That is true. All right. Okay. So what's your plan for this property? Are you planning to sell it? Or are you planning to keep it for the long term? Well, as a syndicator, right? Long term, first of all, it's a very relative term. It's very subjective investors need their money back. They need to turn their money over. It's velocity of money. They need to scale their money uh, and grow their nest egg. So you're not going to find investors usually that are going to be okay with me saying, hey, we're going to buy this property. We're going to hold it for 40 years. No, Bruce, that's not going to work. So our typical hold time is going to be somewhere between five and 10 years. On this specific property, that's the plan. Um, but again, it was a fully stabilized asset without a lot of value add is what we thought. Well, again, it wasn't beat up, didn't have a lot of deferred maintenance, but we instituted all kinds of different revenue streams that they had never even thought of. We got expenses better under control than they had. Um, and we've increased uh, the income, the top line income from $185,000 a month to $245,000 a month. The NOI has gone from, I believe it was 100,000 when we first took over roughly, and now this month we'll probably finish at 140 to 145,000 because we got much more efficient at what we did versus the, the previous owner. Because of that, we're able to do a cash out, re well, not a cash out refi, it's called a supplemental loan. It has the same effect to the investor, but we are able to take money off the table and additional loan proceeds. So we're working through that process right now. It's probably going to be somewhere between 50 and 70% that I'm gonna be able to return to my investors after holding it for about three years. So, you know, we're still looking to hold it for five to 10, but we will be able to execute a supplemental loan in the process. Excellent. So what type of, um, um, what did you institute to get that NOI higher? What type of uh, income did you, how did you get that income higher? Well, the, the low hanging fruit there, everybody knows if you don't have rubs in place, do it. Well, they had rubs in place, right? Uh, you got to do some upgraded units. Well, everybody knows that. And yeah, we do that. We already had rubs in place. We, we had a plan for um, 
upgraded units, spend about 2,500 bucks and get $100 more in rent is what we're able to achieve at this property. But some things outside of the box that we did, I think more and more people are getting on this, but we looked around, well, what we really did is after we bought the property, said, okay, we have a lot of extra money raised for rehab as contingency money to make sure if we feel we need to do something after we buy that we didn't realize we'll have extra money. So we go in, we send a, a letter or a questionnaire out to the residents. What would you like to see us do for you um, that we aren't currently providing or doing for you on the property right now? And we get all kinds of weird, random things, but one thing kept coming up. Can you figure out a way to have me not have to park in the direct sun when it's 110 degrees outside in Austin in the summer? And I kept hearing that. You know, one person talked about hail, you know, keep my car covered. I was like, oh, okay. So everybody's talking about some kind of parking structure. I could do garages, too expensive. I could do carports. So I looked into carports. I got carports built for $930 a space and I can rent those out on that property. Now, each property is going to have its own rate that you can lease these for. This property, we can rent, we've rented most of them at $40 a space. So that's $480 a year. So it's about a 50% return on our money. It made the property worth like five to $700,000 more because now we're going to generate, you know, $36,000, 35 to $40,000 extra a year in income, use a six cap, and you've increased the crap out of your value. Another big thing we did, we have two laundry rooms. And between the two laundry rooms, we have 16 washer and dryer sets. So 16 washers, 16 dryers. And when we bought it, we had a laundry contract in place like everybody usually does. But the previous owner had let the um, had given notice and they were out of their 10-year contract and they were started, they had been going month to month. And so I thought, okay, let's let's hold the property for a while. Let's see how laundry works on this property before we make any kind of a decision. So about a year, about six to eight months ago, we decided to terminate that contract, buy all of our own washers and dryers, and take all the income for ourselves because we were losing 65% of the collected revenue from those machines on a monthly basis. So we're averaging about $1,400 a month in laundry income. If I buy my own machines, which we did, we are now making over $6,000 a month in laundry income. That made the property worth another seven to $900,000. So it's these things that feel like small things that could be massive things. And, and that's just two of the biggest things we've done. Excellent. That's awesome. Yeah, I think carports in Florida might be also a good idea because it gets really hard, hot over here. Well, even if it's somewhere in the Northeast, it doesn't get hot. Yeah, but there's snow, right? So it'll help keep snow off cars. So I think carports... And another thing with that we thought about that, okay, everybody's talking about carports. We looked around the submarket. Nobody had carports in the entire submarket. It's like, well, that's a way to differentiate ourselves also. So I think they're always a good idea if they're not already there when you take over. Yes, absolutely. Expert tips. All right. So now we are in the part of the show where you're going to give me three tips. And today, you're, you're going to give me tips on how to change your mindset to be successful. Okay. So, you know, just basics. It's stuff that a lot of people have already heard, but don't be afraid, right? 
being afraid is going to keep you where you are now. And if you're watching these podcasts, listening to these things, going to seminars, talking to mentors to be and all this stuff, there's something missing in your life, right? You don't make the money you need to make that you want to make. You don't think your retirement's going the way it should. Don't be afraid. You're going to have to do some things that feel uncomfortable, but you have to get yourself prepared, educated, listen to those around you that have done it successfully. Then you have to have conviction in yourself and confidence in yourself. I was a retail guy, right? I don't know anything about this, but I had been successful at everything I'd ever done, like most everybody listening to this thing. So I thought, you know what? This is another thing I just have to learn, listen to my mentor, and we'll, we'll roll out there and do it. So conquered the fear. It was scary. You know, that first property was scary. The day before I was going to close, um, I called my mentor and I was like, uh, she's like, what's wrong? I was like, oh shit, I'm buying an apartment complex tomorrow. I don't know what I'm doing. I said, I've read all the books. I've listened to you and I don't know what I'm doing. She goes, but that's okay. I do. I had a mentor that I listened to and she supported me through it. So it worked out well. Second thing I would say is be careful about who you're listening to, right? I had a very, very highly qualified and experienced mentor to lean on. There are all kinds of online communities centered around real estate, lots of forums. People will post questions and I'll sit there and I'll watch. And if I can add value to the conversation, I will. But very often I just sit there and I read through the responses and it's unbelievable the kind of stuff that I'm hearing people give as reading, I should say, not here, reading as advice to people that pose these questions that are newbies. You know, one lady said, uh, I don't know how to do what you're doing, but I, no, she said, I've never done what you're doing, but I've been studying for five years. This is how it's done. I was like, oh my God, that, why? And you could tell they were happy with her answer and her answer may have been good, may have been bad. Not going to say whether it was good or bad. It's just, you're listening to people that have never done it. That's stupid. That's so dumb. A couple of days ago on the same forum site, um, somebody asked, how do you deal with surprise CapEx when you buy a property? And some people were getting, there was all kinds of different answers. One of the answers was, hey, you know, you can use your security deposits and your excess rent to start bulking that stuff up. You know, these, these reserves that you need in case something happens. I'm like, whoa, no. So I went on in all caps, I said, do not use your security deposits. That is not your money. Your money. I'm like, oh my God. The, advi the person that gave that as advice, they were well-meaning. They thought, hey, that's a great idea. That's a great hack I found. But they didn't understand the full picture. They didn't understand that's a liability, basically. That's an account uh, payable. You owe that to them when they move out. Unless they destroy the place and you confiscate it, then you can have it. But until then, that is not your money. Be careful who you're listening to. And then third, be careful what you're hearing from those you're listening to. You know, I've got a book coming out. And uh, I couldn't put on the cover exactly what I wanted because Amazon has requirements that they will not let me cuss on the cover. So <laughs> I had to put an asterisk in there. Um, the name of the book is Syndicating is a Bitch. But we had to replace the I with an asterisk. So it's Syndicating is a Bitch and other truths you haven't been told. And this is not to say any or all of them are bad, but when you go to expos and conferences and you hear people at the front of the stage talking about all the rainbows and lollipops and everything's perfect and unicorns and 
then they have students trot across the stage and you hear about their success stories. You're only hearing their success stories. It's rare that you're going to hear anybody legitimately talk about their risks and some of the deals that didn't work out. Now, to cover their ass legally, they may go, hey, their result is not going to be your result. It's no indication of what will happen for you in the future. These are just some examples. Okay. They're not going to tell you what could go wrong on stage because they're trying to sell you a five to $35,000 program. If I scare the shit out of you on stage and make you go, oh, uh, I, I don't, don't want to do this. Well, they can't make their money. So they're not going to either talk about it or if they are, they're going to cover over it briefly enough to keep them on the right side of the law. But there are things that are going to go wrong. You're going to find dead people. You're going to have fires. You're going to have floods. You're going to have tornadoes. I had Homeland Security take, not Homeland Security, uh, OFAC. It's a division of the government that tries to patrol and control money laundering for terrorist organizations and drug cartels. They took $5.2 million of my money when I did my wire to close one day. They didn't tell me they took it. They just took it. And now they have two weeks legally to research it to figure out, whoa, is this a terrorist organization or a drug cartel? Because it looks like the same name that is on this list. So they took my money. We got it cleared up within three days, but for three days, I don't know what the hell's going on. You know, so that stuff's going to happen to you. There's so much that's going to happen to you. You don't understand. You can't foresee. So just understand that if you're not the kind of person that can handle those gut punches that are going to come this might not be the right thing for you. So again, just be careful who you're talking to, what you're being told, and try to find some real stories, some truth. And that's part of what the book is going to be for me. That's awesome. Because I, on my Facebook group, I try to share that journey with people, you know, like people think that, you know, everything is so easy. And uh, actually yesterday I had a live where I was telling them how I was spent so much time on this deal that I was trying to get 20 plus units and it didn't happen. And I spent a lot of time and I was a little bit discouraged, you know, like, you know, I put all this time, but then on the brighter side, I am re more ready for the next one. I got my investor friends, you know, committed to investing with me. So next time I know who to call that is willing to invest with me. And I got my documentation ready and I got all these things lined up that I didn't have before but still it didn't happen. So yeah, I, I, I would love to get your book. Uh, let me know when it comes out. Uh, do you have a release day already? Well, we were at the, the Wheelbarrow Profits, the Jake and Gino event back in, I think it was October in yeah. Orlando. And we had a booth we had set up and I was telling everybody, probably November, December. Well, then I got stupid busy and I kind of put it on the, on the back burner. I feel really bad about that. So now the realistic timeline is it's looking like it's going to be mid-May when it comes out. That's awesome. So I'm going to write it down in May 2020. Absolutely. Look for it. Yes. You know, it's, uh, I think I was reading a book. Uh, what was it? Uh, Barking at the wrong tree, I think. I can remember now. But it was talking about how you need to set up a deadline because once you set up a deadline, you are a little bit more, it's more realistic. <clears throat> that you will achieve that goal because if you keep saying later, 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 it will never happen. So I like to set up the deadlines. I am releasing my podcast now <laughs> at the end of this month and I am working really hard to do it because it's a lot of work. 
Yeah, it is. It's a whole lot of work. And you're like me. I'm certain that you, this is not the only thing you've got going on, right? I own properties. So, and I have my own management company, my own construction company. We're writing a book. We're working on some educational things. Um, we're buying more properties. We're moving uh, or buying a house in another city. Uh, we have a management company in Nashville. So yeah, we're drunk all over the place. So it's hard to stay focused, even with a deadline, you know, it, it's still hard sometimes. So again, you know, we, I've got a lot of interested people in the book, so I, I need to, you know, keep them up to date, let them know that it's coming. I, I wasn't lying. I wasn't kidding you pulling your, you know, uh, your ear here, but uh, it's coming. Yeah. You just get sidetracked. That's, that's awesome. So tell people, how can they find you on social uh, media? Facebook apartment dash guy. Uh, you can go to Instagram apartment dot guy. That's the two best ways to keep up with me. Or you can go to apartment no, apt dash guy dot com. That's our website. Now let me apologize. Now the website is kind of gotten broken recently. It's still there. There's still the form you can submit to get on our investing list. If you have any interest in that, you want to follow what's going on with us when the book will come out. It's a little rough right now, but we're going through and revamping the, the website, so it'll get a little better. But yeah, the website's apt-guy on Facebook, apt.guy on Instagram is the best way to follow me. Awesome. So everybody, go to social media and start following Bruce. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today and you know sharing with us so, so much value. And uh, I would love to have you again in the future when you release the book. Yep, anytime. Let me know. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Bye. This was Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com, where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.